The Lord is great. As we uh, bless him, uh, the, the number one uh, celebration of the Christian church is not Christmas, much as some might think it is. It's Easter, because Easter was celebrated long before Christmas started even being celebrated much in the first centuries. So uh, it's what Jesus has done for us at the cross that means we can be here, be forgiven, have the Holy Spirit, all those of a new birth. Um, a big thank you to uh, our praise team this week. That was Lynn Bowman on piano, Dave Pike on drums, Rick Hausen on guitar, Calvin McNeil on keyboard, and Heidi McNeil on vocals. And uh, a big thank you to the Campbell kids for their excellent announcement video. And behind the scenes of Naomi and Sophia was Briella who did the editing. Great job, Briella. Briella's on our presentation computer today. So thank you. And uh, excellent job by the all who were involved in both sound booth renovations and the painting decorating. If you've noticed any changing colors, Ginny and decorating crew, Dave and Rogers and many others were involved. And a big thank you to all the work that's gone on in the meantime. Um, uh, a couple of sad uh, notes um, uh, happened later in the week, so they didn't make it into the announcements. Um, uh, some of you, um, uh, especially those who were in Living Water congregation, uh, knew the foster child that uh, Jeff and Lynn Bowman had from 2004 to 2010, Cody Perkin. Unfortunately, Cody died Thursday night of what we used to call a stroke, an internal brain bleed. Uh, he would have been 27 in about 10 days, so uh, sympathy to all of Cody's family and connection. And also on Friday, um, uh, Ruthie and John Yule, uh, Ruthie's sister Pauline Gulutsen, who's in Michigan, passed away. Uh, she'd been fighting cancer for a while, so um, uh, some um, sad notes there. Let, let's pray for them. Lord, uh, Thank you that we've been blessed to know uh, Cody in uh, various aspects through the years. And have mercy on him, Lord, and uh, on those who are, are close to him. We pray for Ruthie and Judy and the rest of uh, Ruthie's family to mourn the loss of Pauline. Uh, thank you for that Ruthie was able to be there with her and uh, just for uh, the, the joy and the, the love that she brought into uh, many others' lives. And just grant these uh, families, your comfort at this time. We thank you, Lord, for resurrection hope and the promise of Easter that you have conquered the grave. In Christ's name, amen. Life can get pretty tough at times. We get tempted to pack it in, give up, try and find something easier, even back down from something we know is right because of opposition. The Lord has promised his strength and help to bear up under any load he gives us. Now, just a little side note on that children's story. I don't know if it made anybody else squirm a little bit when, when she said repeatedly, God won't give us more than we can handle. So that's not strictly speaking in scripture. Uh, Joseph, for example, was sold into slavery by his brothers, uh, threatened, then slandered by Potiphar's wife, forgotten by Pharaoh's cupbearer, the disappointments at times must have been overwhelming. Yet the Lord used these crushing defeats to 
hone Joseph's character and capability to govern a whole region. In the New Testament, the author of the book of Hebrews has quite a list of heroes in his Hall of Fame in chapter 11, including some who faced lions and fire, were tortured, flogged, jeered, imprisoned, sawn in two, mistreated, and killed. Would you consider some of that more than you can handle? God's not into the prosperity gospel. Uh, Then in chapter 12, the author elaborates how God disciplines us as sons through hardship. Even Jesus, the Son of God, was not exempt from hardship. Hebrews 12.31 says, 12.34, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, that sounds like it's expecting a lot, shedding your blood. Faithfulness as God's sons and daughters involves sticking with his calling, even through tough circumstances. A teenager had decided to quit high school, saying he was just fed up with it all. His father was trying to convince him to stay with it. Son, he said, you just can't quit. All the people who are remembered in history didn't quit. Abe Lincoln, he didn't quit. Thomas Edison, he didn't quit. Douglas MacArthur, he didn't quit. Elmo McCringle, who? The son burst in. Who's Elmo McCringle? See, the father replied, you don't remember him. He quit. (laughs) I've been enjoying the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. In episode 382, Carrie interviewed William Vanderblumen, who thinks 2021 is going to be the year of turnover in organizations. Why? In 2020, almost no turnover happened because people didn't want to leave because of COVID. The last thing people wanted to do during lockdown was to add more uncertainty into their lives. So rather than changing jobs to start a new one, they just stayed where they were. But turnover is an unavoidable ongoing reality in an organization. So Vanderblumen was predicting we'll see a lot of people quitting their jobs and looking for something else in 2021. Other podcasts have noted how 2020 was a hard year for leaders in any organization, and that was true for churches as well. There were controversies over whether to stay open or just be online, to mask or not mask, to sing or not sing. And in the States, there was political unrest and protests about racial injustice. Whatever you post, you're bound to offend someone. If you post something in support of Black Lives Matter, for example, are you sincere or just virtue signaling? So you can get criticized either way. Pastors are leaders of community, and that can be challenging in normal times, let alone during a pandemic. Today is Palm Passion Sunday, the week before Easter, when each year we recall Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, while crowds celebrated and cheered him on, waving branches cut from the trees. But soon other crowds were calling for him to be crucified and watching him be flogged and beaten. That following Friday, he would be publicly executed, crucified, naked, like a common criminal. 
Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah, about 740 to 680 BC, or about 700 years before Jesus was born. Yet his chapters 52 and 53 have strong parallels to the circumstances of Christ's death, some parts almost as if the prophet were an eyewitness. These are the so-called servant songs in Isaiah. Today we look at the third of four of them back in chapter 50. Here, too, some suffering of the servant is alluded to, but overall the emphasis is that God vindicates his servant and supplies what is needed to endure even the harshest opposition. Four times the term the sovereign Lord is used, verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 9. Lord is God's divine name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, transliterated in the Hebrew I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. Coupling it with the term sovereign, literally Adonai or my Lord, emphasizes God's being in control, in charge, directing events that happen, supervising or overseeing the course of events. Even when tough things happen, God has not gone on vacation, but is still in control, superintending, bringing good out of even negative circumstances, as we see in Joseph's story. Well, let's approach this under four headings. Formidable foes, flinty face, fueled faith, and gutsy godliness. First, formidable foes. Sometimes foes come in the form of folks who have say over very ordinary aspects of our life. Cheryl Miller, 1995 Basketball Hall of Fame inductee and older sister of NBA star Reggie Miller, recalls a moment that served as a springboard to her great playing career. She says, I was 13 years old when I tried out for an all-male basketball team. The coach told me that if I could beat his son in a one-on-one game to 11 points, I could play on the team. I trounced him 11 to 1 and asked the coach when I should report to practice. He looked me straight in the eye and said, Miller, the only court I'll see you in is a court of law. No girl will ever play on my team. I ran home crying and told my dad that I never wanted to play basketball again. He sat me up straight and said, Cheryl, I didn't raise any quitters. Tomorrow you'll try out for the girls' team and become the best who ever played. This was a turning point in my life. From that moment on, I never accepted being second best. Jesus faced formidable foes during his passion or time of suffering leading up to his crucifixion. The verses in Isaiah 50 seem to foreshadow the rough treatment he endured. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offer my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. To pull out the beard of an oriental man was a sign of utmost shame and humiliation. Compare what the gospel writers record about how Jesus was treated. Matthew 26, 67 and 27, 26. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Also Mark 15, 19. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Hard enough being struck on the head with a, uh, with a piece of wood once, let alone again and again. 
On at least three separate occasions, Jesus predicted to his disciples the painful trial and execution that was awaiting him in Jerusalem. You see Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 is an easy way to remember it if you want. Yet he was not dissuaded. In fact, he was very determined about keeping this divine appointment. Luke 9, 51 says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. ESV, he set his face to go to Jerusalem very intentionally. Would we have had the nerve to do that had we known what was waiting for us? Isaiah's prophecy about the servant reflects this same attitude. Isaiah 50, verse 7, Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. Christ was resolute, determined, obedient even unto death. Bruce Marciano played Jesus in the Matthew film and reflects on his experience in his book, In the Footsteps of Jesus. One observation Bruce Marciano made was, Jesus wasn't dragged to the cross, he was crawling to the cross. He came among us to save sinners. That was the raison d'etre of his incarnation, what he was here for. Jesus' resoluteness must have produced consternation in his accusers. Standing before high priest Caiaphas and then King Herod and finally the Judean Judean governor Pontius Pilate, Jesus was silent when accusations were made against him rather than defending himself. Mark 14, 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Mark 15, 3-5. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Before King Herod in Luke 23, he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then, Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. But through it all, Jesus was resolute, flinty-faced, not responding to the false accusations. Jesus' silence forced the direction of questioning to the key issue. It was not whether he was seditious toward the Roman overlords. It was not whether he was a threat to the Jewish religious establishment, whether he would go beyond clearing the temple courts to tearing down the temple and rebuilding it as some false witnesses tried unsuccessfully to maintain. Finally, Jesus' flinty face compelled the high priest to pop the question that was ultimate. Mark 14, 61. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember, we were talking about Isaiah using the term Sovereign Lord four times, Yahweh, Adonai, where Yahweh is related to the Hebrew for I am. In Jesus' reply in the Greek, 
I am is very emphatic. Ego eme, not yet. Ego is not required. As if God is suddenly revealing that it's God himself that's on trial, the great I am. Likewise, picture John's account of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 18, 4-6. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. What? Almost as if the force of divine self-revelation, the voice of one who stilled the sea and calmed the storm, was powerful enough to knock them off their feet. How does one become so strong, to hold firm and unflinching when confronted by formidable foes? Back up to verses 4 and 5 in Isaiah 50 to catch hints of the daily regimen, the, the regular routine by which the suffering servant cultivated a relationship with God so close that it laid a foundation of strength when it came to times of testing. Verses 4 and 5 in Isaiah 50. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. So you can tell this is not in the crisis. This is morning by morning, part of the the practice of daily living. Having God waken your ear to listen, like one being taught, like a a student enrolled in a university course and intent on passing it because it's a required course. When you waken each morning, what grabs your ear, your attention? Do you intentionally take time to focus heavenward? Let him Open your ears, literally carve out in the Hebrew, to listen. That's more than just hearing. Listening involves devoting your attention. Shut off the radio or the background noise if that's distracting. What's the still small voice trying to communicate as you meditate on a passage of Scripture? The more familiar you become with the Bible as the years pass, the more you'll be able to mine from each passage as various passages interpret and throw light on each other. What is it the servant learns that he can then pass on to others? Verse 4, God has given him an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. God the Father is spirit and doesn't have arms and legs. God uses his word to command, to strengthen, to bolster us up, to sustain the weary. As God has helped us, we in turn are able to provide encouragement to others. Does that characterize our home? Encouraging words in line with Christian teaching. Home, home on the range, where never is heard a discouraging word. Evangelist Bill Glass asked a group of a thousand prison inmates, how many of you had parents who told you that you would end up in prison one day? Almost every one of the inmates raised his hand. What messages are we communicating to our children? Do we have an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary? Finally, our passage in Jesus' life in his final week reveal a godly gutsiness in facing those formidable foes. 
It's the climax that has been building from the crescendo of what the sovereign Lord has been doing for the servant through all these verses. Verse 4, the sovereign Lord has given me. Verse 5, the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. Verse 7, because the sovereign Lord helps me. Verse 9, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. With backing like that, bring it on. Isaiah 58 and 9, he who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is he that will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. The day will come when you will be laid in the ground and only two things will matter. Did you love God? And did you love people? Not how fine a house you had, how expensive a car, whether your clothes had designer labels, how many digits there were in your bank account. We will all wear out like a garment. So even though Jesus has been beaten, flogged, spat upon, knocked about, he still faces his accusers with strength and calmness, almost as if he is the one that has written the script for all this and they are just mouthing their lines. All things are culminating in his death and resurrection to forgive people's sins and give new birth and eternal life in the Holy Spirit to those who trust in him. We see similar gutsiness in the Apostle Paul on a couple of occasions. In Ephesus, in Acts 19, Paul's extraordinary miracles healing the sick have led to a riot amongst the tradespeople who are concerned that their sales will be affected by so many turning away from idolatry. Acts 19, 29 to 31. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. He wanted to. Paul was bold and game to speak to the rioters, but others wouldn't let him. Then in Jerusalem, turmoil develops because some assume incorrectly Paul had defiled the temple area by bringing in some of his Gentile traveling companions. Acts 21, 30 on. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. He's arrested and bound with chains. The commander orders that Paul be taken into the barracks, kind of carried on top of the, the soldiers' shoulders. Uh, Acts 21:35. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, "Away with him!" As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, "May I say something to you?" Now, what would you say to the commander? Maybe, "Thank you for saving me from being beaten to death." Or, "How fast can these guys carry me to safety?" What is it Paul wants to ask? Verse 35b. Please let me speak to the people. What? A minute ago they're trying to tear you limb from limb and you want to talk to them? 
That's godly gutsiness. Hebrews 13, 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Paul later wrote to the church at Rome some of the most reassuring, faith-overflowing words in all of Scripture that reverberate with Isaiah's, Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. What did Paul write? Romans 13, or Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I get an amen? Amen. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ. He who vindicates me is near. Isaiah 58. And it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Verse 9. Last section. Keep on plotting. We've seen that some feel 2020 will be the year of turnover. When times are tough, it's easy to want to quit, to throw in the towel, to move on to something easier. Isaiah the prophet and Jesus our Savior both encourage us to hang tight with our sovereign Lord, to keep listening morning by morning, to not be rebellious or draw back, but set our face like flint and encounter our troubles with confidence that our vindicator is near. William Carey was once asked about his great accomplishments in his work of translating the Bible into Indian languages and dialects. He replied, I'm not a genius, just a plotter. But what a plotter. In 40 years of labor, he translated all or portions of the Bible into 34 of the languages and dialects of India. Don't be like those foes that Isaiah says wear out like a garment and get moth-eaten. You have the backing of your vindicator who is near, whose word sustains the weary. Persist in his strength. Herschel Walker is a winner of the Heisman Trophy, which is awarded annually to the most outstanding player in college football. Herschel Walker once said, My God-given talent is my ability to stick with something longer than anyone else. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, when times are hard, it's so natural to want to give up. Yet we are awed by the perseverance of Isaiah and Paul and most especially Jesus during his trial and final trouble. Help us not draw back when we are challenged. 
Help us face our foes with confidence in you, to know your word, to listen morning by morning so we're familiar with your voice. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for enduring so much pain and abuse so we could be put right with our Heavenly Father. Amen.